The first lesson, which will also be the text for the sermon, is from the book of Joshua, chapter 7, verses 16 to 26. Joshua got up early in the morning, and he had Israel come forward tribe by tribe. The tribe of Judah was identified. Then he had the tribe of Judah come forward, and he identified the clan of the Zerahites. Next, he had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by individual families, and Zabdi's family was identified. Then he had Zabdi's household come forward one man at a time, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was identified. Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory now to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him praise. Now tell me what you did. Do not conceal it from me. Achan answered Joshua, It is true. I am the one who has sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Among the plunder I saw an expensive Mesopotamian robe, a fine one, and 200 shekels of silver and one wedge of gold. It weighed 50 shekels. I coveted them, and I took them. Now they are hidden in the ground inside my tent, and the silver is underneath it. So Joshua sent agents. They ran to the tent, and there it was. The robe was hidden in his tent, and the silver was underneath it. They took them from the middle of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, where they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua took Achan, son of Zerah, and the silver, the garment, and the wedge of gold, as well as Achan's sons and his daughters, his ox, his donkey, and his flock, and his tent, and everything that belonged to him. So all Israel, led by Joshua, brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought disaster on us? The Lord will bring disaster on you this day. Then all Israel stoned Achan to death. They also burned him and them with fire, and they pelted them with stones. They erected a large heap of stones over Achan, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from the heat of his anger. For that reason, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor to this day. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Although there seemed to be not a whole lot of eyes on them. There was an Olympics this past winter, probably for a combination of reasons. Americans did not express quite as much interest in this winter's Olympics as we usually do, but if you did watch any of the, those Olympics, it is easy to see that there are some people who care very deeply about what happens at the Olympics, and those are the people who compete the dramatic difference in the reactions between athletes who win and lose. Sometimes it's, it's heartbreaking to watch the losers. When you watch the medal ceremonies and you get to see the winners and the pride and the joy on their faces for themselves and for their countries, you get engaged that way, it's hard not to care. About a generation ago, there were three psychologists. This was in the run-up to the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia, they did a study that basically tried to answer the question, is it worth it for an Olympic athlete? When it's all said and done and the Olympics are over and they look back on it, are they satisfied? Are they happy that they poured years, sometimes decades into their lives for training for this one moment in the Olympics? 
And it might not surprise you to learn that when Olympic athletes look back on the games, those who are most satisfied, who are most content with their experience are the ones who took first, who won gold medals. That would seem pretty obvious, right? And then logically then, you might assume that the next happiest athletes after the Olympics are over would be the silver medalists, right? The people who finished second. But what this study found is that silver medalists are actually the most unhappy Olympic athletes of all. And bronze medalists, the people who win third, are actually way more satisfied and happy after the Olympics are over than the silver medalists. Now, why would that be, right? If second is better than third, why would the third place winners be happier? Well, silver medalists, after the Olympics, they tend to look back and think in negative terms. They look back and think, ah, oh, I only had to beat one more person to be the best in the world, and I just couldn't do it. I missed it by that much, and it bothers them for the rest of their lives. Meanwhile, bronze medalists look at their results in positive terms. They think, I beat everybody in the universe who didn't get a medal. There were only three people in the whole world who got to stand up on that podium, and I was one of them. Isn't that great? So, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense, people who win third at the Olympics are much more happy and satisfied than people who take second. So what I want to ask you this morning is, would you like to be more of a bronze medalist in life? Would you like to be more satisfied, more content with what you have, even if it is less than what somebody else has, maybe if it's less than you had before? maybe less than you were hoping you would have by this time in your life? How is it possible for a follower of Jesus Christ to simply be happy, satisfied with whatever God gives us, even if it's less than what we want? If only this man named Achan had stopped for a minute to consider some of these deep, important questions. Now, if you've been reading your Bible every day for 80 years, or you are new to the word of God, there is a very good chance either way that the name Achan does not ring a bell too loudly for you. And there is also a good chance that maybe you have never heard the story of Achan before. This man, Achan, lived at a pivotal time in history. Over a thousand years before our Savior Jesus was born, Achan was part of Israel, the nation that God had chosen to carry the promise of the Savior that would finally be born for all of us. Achan and all of his fellow Israelites had spent the last 40 years. 40 years is a very long time. And they had spent the last 40 years wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, with nothing but the bare necessities that the Lord was providing with them, just enough so that they could survive. And then finally, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness with nothing but the necessities, Achan and all of the Israelites, led by their great general Joshua, they finally got to cross the Jordan River and enter the land that the Lord had promised them. At that time, it was known as the land of Canaan. Their mission from the Lord was to conquer it and turn Canaan into the land of Israel. After they crossed the Jordan River, Achan and the Israelites, led by Joshua, they headed for a major central city. Their strategy was to knock out the biggest city first and then fan out from there. And that city was called Jericho. 
And after marching around the city of Jericho, the walls miraculously fell, and that key city fell into the hands of, of Joshua and Achan and all of the Israelites. And after their victory at Jericho, the Lord gave all of the Israelites crystal clear, specific instructions. You do not take any of the loot from Jericho for yourselves. You dedicate every last bit of the plunder from Jericho to me, the Lord, and destroy all of it. Now, we don't know for sure why the Lord gave that command. The best guess probably is that when it was all said and done and they had conquered the whole country, the Lord didn't want anybody to be able to say, yeah, but the only reason they won is because they got all those supplies and weapons out of Jericho. When it was all over, the Lord wanted all glory for the conquest for himself. But if that's not the reason, then for whatever reason, the Lord said, you don't keep a speck of that stuff for yourself. Dedicate it to me and destroy it. And everybody in Israel listened to the Lord, except for Achan. Well, after their victory at Jericho, that great victory, the Israelites moved on to the next city on their hit list, a city called Ai. But something strange and unexpected happened at Ai. Even though it was much smaller and weaker than Jericho, the Israelites lost the battle of Ai. Joshua was wondering why, so he asked the Lord. And the Lord explained to Joshua why Israel's military conquest had suddenly hit a wall. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. And then the Lord gave Joshua instructions to cast lots publicly so all of Israel would be able to see it, <clears throat> cast lots to find out who the perpetrator was. And when he did that, the lot fell on Achan. Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory now to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him praise. Now tell me what you did. Do not conceal it from me. <clears throat> Achan answered Joshua, It is true. I am the one who has sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Among the plunder I saw an expensive Mesopotamian robe, a fine one, and 200 shekels of silver and one wedge of gold. It weighed 50 shekels. I coveted them, and I took them. Now they are hidden in the ground inside my tent, and the silver is underneath it. So the value of what Achan stole. The gold is worth about $20,000. The silver is worth about $10,000 plus one posh coat, you know, for those brutal Mideastern winters where you gotta have a coat. And it sort of begs the question, why would Achan endanger his entire nation's conquest of the entire promised land for that amount of stuff? And we don't have to wonder about this because Achan tells us in his own words, I coveted them and I took them. Coveting essentially is being a spiritual silver medalist. Coveting is saying, I want more. I'm dissatisfied with what God has given me. And not only do I want more, which is fine, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to get more, even if it means that I have to break one of God's commands. From this sad story of Achan, there's a number of lessons that we can pull away from this. First of all, even though coveting might seem harmless and it's something that happens in your heart, 
Only you and God know for sure if you are coveting something. It is a violation of the ninth and the tenth commandments. See, if I want something that God does not want me to have, because he's told me so, or because it belongs to somebody else and they don't want to sell it to me and they don't want to give it to me and I'm going to have to do something wrong in order to get it, and I allow that desire to grow and fester in my heart, that is coveting and that is wrong all by itself. And by the way, it's not just stuff that we can covet like Achan did. People can even covet other people like somebody else's spouse. A second lesson you can pull away from this is that although coveting might seem harmless enough on its own, it's kind of like the gateway sin. When people covet, it very often leads directly to other sins. Like in Aiken's case, it led right to stealing. It can lead to fraud and shady deals and con jobs, and coveting another person can even lead to adultery. The third thing you can pull away from this is that coveting seems harmless at first, but in the end, it can often land people in a huge mess. Achan's sin of coveting, followed by stealing, landed the entire nation of Israel in a mess in their campaign for the Promised Land, and it landed Achan and his family in a huge mess too. And Joshua took Achan's son of Zerah and the silver, the garment, and the wedge of gold, as well as Achan's sons and his daughters, his ox, his donkey, and his flock, and his tent, and everything that belonged to him. So all Israel, led by Joshua, brought them to the valley of Achor, which means disaster. Joshua said, Why have you brought disaster on us? The Lord will bring disaster on you this day. Then all Israel stoned Achan to death. So from that, we can also learn from the story of Achan that Although we may not think coveting is such a big deal, God clearly does. See, God takes this as such an offensive thing because coveting really is an attack on God himself. It's an offense to God because if I want something so bad that I'm willing to let that desire grow and I'm willing to do anything to get it, then really that thing is rising up in my heart above God and God does not take very kindly to that. We also see that from the punishment that God levies against Achan and his family. Now, let me ask you honestly, do you feel like the punishment here is over the top? Do you feel like the punishment doesn't really fit the crime? Stoning not just Achan, but his whole family and his cattle, and stoning his tent, for goodness sake, stoning a man's tent, and then... Not giving them the dignity of a proper burial, does that seem like too much? Well, there's a number of mitigating circumstances here that might explain the severity of the punishment for the sake of time constraints. We're not going to get into all of them. But consider this was not just between Achan and the Lord. When Achan committed this sin, he was endangering his entire nation, conquest of the promised land. And the Lord had promised Israel they were going to take that land. God takes his promises very seriously. When someone stands between the Lord and keeping his promises, he does react violently. Not only that, but the Lord had promised through this nation, Israel, the Savior was coming for all of us. And Achan was now standing in the way of that promise too. And that explains why the Lord reacts the way that he does. But there is always something about this story that bothers me. And maybe by now, it bugs you too. 
It is the question, why? Why on earth would Achan do such a thing? Why couldn't Achan just be satisfied? Why couldn't he just be content with what the Lord was giving him at that time? Especially considering that the Lord had made this promise, you are going to take this land. And once you get settled in this land, I am going to bless your entire nation. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to be blessed beyond your wildest imagination. Why couldn't Achan just hang in there? Why couldn't he just be satisfied a little while longer? Because he could actually see that the Lord was in the process of keeping this promise. He saw the walls of Jericho fall. He knew he was about to get all these great things from the Lord. Well, unless you're a mind reader, you don't know for sure, but consider what Achan and the Israelites have been up to for the last 40 years, which is a very long time. They've been wandering in the middle of nowhere with nothing but the bare necessities. And the Lord was giving them just what they needed to survive, but nothing more than that. And after 40 years of doing with less, wouldn't you maybe be ready for more? And wouldn't you maybe be ready for more now, even if it means you have to covet it and steal it? Do you ever feel like you've been in the wilderness? Have you ever had a time in life where you kind of feel like you're out in the desert and God isn't blessing you very richly? Ever feel like maybe God isn't moving fast enough on his promises to bless you and Maybe your best interests aren't exactly centered directly in the middle of God's heart. I think there are a lot of Christians who have felt that way at some point in their lives, and I especially think over the past couple of years there have been a lot of Christians who feel like they've just been out in the middle of nowhere, just sort of drifting around without a lot of good things happening to them, without a lot of good things coming their way. And it's so easy for us in that situation to say, to make the same mistake as Achan, to eye up something good, and even if we know that God doesn't want us to have it, just make a grab for it. And this is why God sent his son Jesus to step out into his own wilderness. For 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus Christ stood in his own wilderness, and he did not even have the bare necessities. He did not even have enough to survive. He didn't even have any food for his own starving body. And yet, even at the end of those 40 days and 40 nights with nothing in the wilderness, when Satan came and tempted Jesus, Jesus refused to covet even a piece of bread for his body simply because he knew it was not God's plan. It was not God's purpose for him to have that gift at that time. And so Jesus remained content. He remained satisfied with what the Father was giving him, even though at the moment, what the Father was giving him was nothing. And then later, when Satan takes Jesus to the top of that mountain and shows him all the wealth in the world and says, if you are just dissatisfied with God's plan for you, if you just want this more, all the wealth in the world will be yours. Not even for that did Jesus ditch the plan of his heavenly Father. That glory was going to be Jesus at the end of his cross and his empty grave, but it was not the Father's purpose for him to have it at that time. And Jesus remained satisfied with what his Father was giving him and refused to covet. 
And then later in life, you know, if you fast forward three years in Jesus' ministry, as he is kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane and he can see the suffering and the cross coming his way, Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus was hoping for another way for this plan to be achieved, but he was still content. If the Father's plan was suffering and death, Jesus would be satisfied with that. And this is what a heart of contentment says in a Christian. It takes on the attitude, the heart of our Savior Jesus, and says, I can want more. I can want different from God. But whatever his plan is, whatever he chooses to give me, whether it is a lot or a little, I will be satisfied, I will be content, and trust the plans of my Heavenly Father. And that's what contentment comes down to. A pure trust in God. He has my best interests in heart. He will give me what is best at the right time. So where does that pure trust in God come from? All we have to do is look at the cross of Jesus that is marked out for us so clearly in the season of Lent. All we have to do is look at today's gospel where Jesus goes out to the wilderness, conquers Satan and his temptations for us. See, this is God's plan for you to send his son out to the wilderness to be perfect for you. To send his son to the cross to bleed and die, to wash away all your sins. If this is the Father's plan for you, if this is how his heart feels toward you, then you know all of his plans for you are good. His plans for you include heaven. You can trust him, even in the wilderness. Amen.